0: Hey Lee. Hey Bobby. You all set? All set. Yeah. All right. Hey everybody. Welcome to the Craft Business Life Podcast. My name is Lee Solomon. Uh, this is a podcast all about actors and sometimes other people, but mostly actors, and about the real nuts and bolts of and details of how they do what they do and how they pursue and succeed in their careers and balance it with the rest of their life and life in New York and just everything. Uh, And I'm very excited about my guest today. He is an actor uh, who, among other things, uh, does a unique sort of position in the acting world, I think, which is he is a non-singing actor at the Metropolitan Opera, which is very cool. Um, So we're going to talk about that uh, along with everything else. Uh, Bobby Middlestadt is my guest. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. So, um, the way I like to start these is to ask first what you're up to right now, what your day to day life is right now, if you're working on something, if you have a day job, you know, what's, what's filling your time at the moment?
1: Yeah, kind of, um, all of the above. I, I just wrapped up my season at the Met about a week ago, um, I was there for about seven months, and then now for the next month, they're doing Wagner's Ring Cycle, which I'm not participating in at all, which is okay. I mean, I, I had a great season there, but my season ended about a month early because of the Ring Cycle. Um, so now I'm back to, I guess, what would be my typical day-to-day where uh,
0: I'm just, like, working my jobs to pay my rent in the city yeah, so and again, that's a big topic of this podcast, of course, totally. Um, and we'll get into all of that. So first, to be clear about this Met job, and I want to really get into that as well, because like I said, it is a cool and unique um, job in the acting world. So are you saying that you get contracted for a season, like you know in advance that you're going to be there for like seven months solid?
1: Um, not all the time. It's really interesting because the Met, they, they work in, they have a repertory season. So they published the season a few months in advance. So in February, they announced the 2019, 2020 season. Mm-hmm. So when you look at that, if, if you've been there for a few shows, if you have shows coming back, you have an idea of like, okay, so like, I, I know I'll be asked to be in Turando, I know I'll be asked to be in, uh, Tosca. And there are a couple shows where you can say, okay, like, I know with a certain degree of confidence that I'm going to be in that. And then the rest of the casting, they do kind of on a rolling basis. Um, the Met does, like, typically five new productions every year, and those, um, uh, there are invited auditions for that. And then the rest of it, the head of the department works with all the Mets, like, on-staff directors to cast the season sort of on a rolling basis.
0: So, that makes sense. Now, are you uh, equity, or are you not equity? I'm not equity. I am,
1: uh, I'm SAG, and I was planning on, I've been SAG for about, a, it'll be a year in August, and I was planning on buying my equity card, mm-hmm. just because I'll be eligible, but I think I might hold off on that. But uh, the Mets all non-jurisdictional. It's covered by AGMA. That's the union that represents
0: opera singers and
1: I think the orchestra.
0: Oh, okay, that's what I was going to ask. So that's interesting. So equity doesn't even apply to anybody there. No, not at all. Know okay. um, that? That's very interesting. Okay. But the um, Met has the Met has nine actors
1: on staff. That yeah. they they have like a. A salary and benefits from the Metropolitan Opera. And they are always covered under Agma contracts, so they're part of the
0: union. Sure. But all the other actors are freelance. I see. So so you don't have to join AGMA to do this there. No. no. Gotcha. Gotcha. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't really didn't know that about the separate union. That's cool. Um, um and and by the way, what you were saying about waiting on joining equity, you know, I, I totally understand that, too. That's another topic that comes up a lot. So, okay, so, so yeah, we'll get back to to the Met and everything. But so you mentioned that now you're off from there for the moment and you're back to your mm-hmm. day jobs. Uh, tell us what those are. Yeah, so I have
1: two primary day jobs. The one I've been doing the longest is I work – at the Walter Kerr Theater on Broadway on the front of house staff. Um, so like ushering, sometimes I sub in for ticket taking. Yeah. And that's a job I started doing in grad school because the schedule was really flexible. It was always at night, so it never conflicted with classes. And the money was pretty decent. And I was really able to make it work for me while I was in school. And I liked it so much that i it's just been such a solid and reliable job after school, so I just kind of kind of
0: stuck with it. So, I'm glad you said that, because a couple of things on that. First of all, I'm going to ask this for the benefit of people listening, who, who of course, yeah. did. Uh, you know, we always want to talk about, you know, options and advice for day jobs for actors and stuff. And also, to be honest, for selfish reasons myself, because I always wonder how Broadway ushers get that, that job. So how, how do yeah. you get it, and how can someone get it if they want, if they're interested in that? Oh, man. It's
1: it's extremely nepotistic, and it's it's definitely an insider community where mm-hmm. if, if you ask anyone who works in a Broadway theater how they got the job, mm-hmm. I, I'm pulling this number out of thin air, but I would wager like 90% of people would say, oh, my cousin works here, or like my cousin works at that theater, or my uncle used to do it. For me, one of the girls that I was in school with already worked
0: there. Mm. So she gave me the information. Mm -hmm. So there's no just, like, website people can go or any way to just apply for it? Well, they they can. I've definitely seen on Playbill, I know Roundabout
1: and the Schubert organization have posted Usher job openings on Playbill. And sometimes, I think one time I saw Drew Jampson Posted on Playbill, and they also have like com slash careers, and that's where they post I think I've seen the substitute usher position up there and that's where they post all their internships and stuff.
0: Yeah, makes sense so again, if people don't understand what we're talking about, you know, all these Broadway theaters are owned and managed by companies, so right. you want to kind of find out the company information is a good starting point and I suppose if you want to be bold, you know Bring a resume by and either see if you can find the house manager or ask the box office people to give it to the house manager, you know, something like that. Yeah, or
1: even I um I don't want to like have the stage doors flooded now, but I'm I think if someone <laughs> just if they just dropped their resume off at the stage door and said, Hey, can you give this to the house manager? Exactly I'm sure they would. Yeah. Um you know, because these people aren't
0: they're not jerks. Right. I'm sure
1: they'll pass it on.
0: Yep. And to be clear, um, front of house staff, like ushers at a Broadway theater, there's no union for that, right? Actually, there is.
1: Oh, um, right. Local 306, which is under the, the bigger umbrella
0: of IATSE, which is like the theatrical hands union. Right. So, yeah, I knew about the stagehands. I wasn't sure about it. Right, right, house. So if you get hired to be an usher do you have to then join the union or how does it work eventually I think it's eventually. once you earn a certain amount of money or once
1: you've worked a certain amount of shifts I and okay. the number's really low I think it's once you work 40 shifts which is 5 full weeks right. in a Broadway schedule right. you have to join local 306 but it's a really modest
0: initiation fee and the, the dues are like 100 bucks a year Very cool. And then I assume you get, you know, benefits and higher pay and so forth.
1: Yeah, they negotiate our, our like, salary contracts. That's how I get my health insurance is through Local
0: 306. I gotta tell you, that's very good to know, and it's not something I've thought about in a while, so I'm glad you reminded me, because, uh... That is something I personally would actually be very interested in at this point. But anyway, oh, totally. yeah. so I appreciate that. And again, you know, just for the heck of it, because I'm sure actors are curious too and other people that might be thinking about this, um, you know, tell me what I'm missing or if I'm missing anything, because I would imagine, you know, your duties or your shift as a Broadway usher, basically, are you get there a certain amount of time before the show you uh, obviously help guide people to their seats and yell at people to turn off their cell phones. I know there's a lot of that. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know, I assume there's certain maybe cleaning or things you have to do afterwards or whatever, and, and then you go home, right? Am I missing anything? No, you pretty much nailed it. Um, <laughs> that's all there
1: is to it. It's it's one of the, the easiest jobs in the world, which isn't... I don't want it to detract from the job. Like, no, I, still, no. I still really enjoy it. And uh, it definitely presents challenges, especially in a in a customer service sure. sense, because you, you do have to deal with some people who aren't the best. Sure. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it. You get there. It used to be an hour before the show. They just renegotiated the contract. So we're getting paid more, but we have to get there. 90 minutes before the show and then you see people you look for cell phones yeah if you're if you're fortunate like my theater the house manager is great she lets us read during the show so when I was in grad school I was doing like the bulk of my homework just on the steps in the theater nice um
0: and again I I don't want to put you on the spot you don't have to elaborate if you don't want to but since you mentioned it what did you mean about sometimes having some tough Customer interactions. I'm trying to imagine what that what that is in that context. Oh yeah, I mean, just, just certain personalities when they when they pay a certain amount of money
1: for a ticket, they think ah, they're it. entitled to certain things or like <laughs> certain certain treatments, and so. Right. Um, yeah, without using, like, any really,
0: really bad words, we just have to deal with people who are, like, pretty rude. (laughs) Listen, man, I've been, I've been a waiter, I've been a bartender, I've been a restaurant manager, I've worked in hotels, I get it. (laughs) Yeah, you, yeah, you (laughs) get it. Um, so, and then, you, you, you answered this somewhat, but that was gonna be another question was, and I'm sure it varies a bit, but, you know, what do you do you know, while the show is actually performing. Can you just stand in the back and watch it?
1: Yeah, that depends on the theater. Like, every house manager kind of has their own different rules. Mm -hmm. So, for my house, we, it's really an awesome situation. The house manager is super nice. She's a great boss. If you want to watch the show, you can just sit there and watch and when I was in school, the show I started with was *A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder*. Oh yeah, and that was uh, you know Bryce Pinkham and Jefferson Mays. Yeah. So every night I was I was watching the show, just <laughs> learning as much as I yeah. could from them because I think you know Jefferson Mays is probably in my opinion like one of the best American actors we have now. Oh. I- working in the theater. Absolutely. So that was super educational. But then certain shows, once you've seen it. 25 times. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, it, it gets a little old. So then she, she says, you know, you can read in the theater, as long as you're doing your job and, like, making sure people aren't recording the show or texting.
0: Yeah, to me, to me that seems like, not to idealize it too much, but it seems like a nice balance. If you want to watch the show, you can. If you don't, then you just go outside and have some, uh, to the lobby or whatever, and have some time to yourself. Yeah. That's pretty much it. Very cool. Very cool. Um, And the other thing I wanted to say about that is you mentioned this to me in your original email about, um, you said it's the Care Theater, so you were doing the Springsteen show. So let's talk about that a little bit, because obviously that was a, you know, that came in as a powerhouse of a show. You know, it sold out, I think, well before it even opened and whatever. Um, I finally got to watch it like everybody else on Netflix. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, which I, and I enjoyed it very much. I thought he was great. I, I didn't know a lot about his story. Um, it made me want to buy his book, and uh-huh. I just uh, I thought it was great. So, what can you tell us about working on that show, or anything any any interesting inside info on that? Or, um, I
1: mean, yeah, that was a pretty. Awesome experience. I I also had like I had not a lot of exposure to Bruce Springsteen before it came in, just because Mm -hmm. when I was growing up, my my household like we were listening to Billy Joel and uh, me too the the, the Beatles all the time. Yeah, but I never really heard Springsteen except like they would always play Born in the USA between the innings at baseball games and stuff. Right. (laughs) So when he was coming into the theater. Weirdly, like purely by coincidence, I was listening to uh, the WTF part podcast that Mark Maron does. Love it, yes, one of my favorites. Yeah, and Springsteen did an interview. Yep, and I just I had no idea like what his life story was, yep. and you know his his history with his father, and right. I I just realized that like oh like Bruce Springsteen is a really deep artist with a poetic soul. So I started to get excited about the show. And then for anyone who's seen it on Netflix, like that's essentially what the show was. It was extremely reflective, really deep. And I can say probably the best insider info I can give is that the audience was not expecting that. Like we would have people show up who had seen Bruce 75 times in concert. Of course. So they were expecting to like show up, have a few beers and get rowdy at a Springsteen show. Right. Uh, they were not expecting to sit down for two and a half hours in a dark theater and watch him play piano and talk about his depression. So we had a ton of people just leaving the theater in tears and saying it was like one of the most
0: transformative experiences of their life. It, that's a great, that's a great uh, thing, and absolutely, it's so true. And by the way, you know, if people can't imagine you know, doing three hours of rock and roll with his big band is one thing, and that is impressive to say the least, but doing two and a half hours of what he did just straight through by himself is also monumental, a monumental task to do eight times a week. It really is. Yeah, Um, I don't know how he did it. Bruce is almost 70 years old. Maybe he just turned 70. Oh, I know, I know. And by the way, was it, it, I, don't, I couldn't tell if Netflix was edited or not. Was it was no intermission? Did you say that? Yeah, it was. It ran two hours
1: forty five minutes with no intermission, which was
0: a Same. really really Same. bold choice on Bruce Springsteen's part. No, I mean, I mean, I no, I like it. It provided a really nice unified flow. I mean, you really get drawn in. It was really well done. And yeah, um, I agree. And by the way, it, on the Netflix one, at one point, his wife comes out and does a couple of songs with him. Did she do that every night?
1: Yeah, she would come out every night. Wow. Except there are like a few performances she couldn't come to. She nice. um, she had
0: she was sick for a little while. Oh, okay. Yeah, just like a, like a cold. And I have to ask too, with a show like that, with him being such a legit you know, celebrity beyond your normal Broadway cast, was there any hullabaloo? Was there, like, extra security or anything, or no? Actually, yeah. So we had theater security provided by Juchampson.
1: Mm-hmm. And then Bruce had his own security team. that was, oh. as far so, as I saw,
0: at least four people. So I assume that, you know, I know this happens when movie stars do Broadway shows and whatever, too, but I'm sure with him it was big. I assume that you know every night he would leave through the stage door. There were probably like barriers set up with people looking to talk to him, and would he like just sign a few things and get in a car, or what would he do?
1: Yeah, that's he mostly did the signing on his way in, and we would get people. They would start waiting around eleven in the morning or noon. Wow! And he and he would get to the theater at like six fifteen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so he would sign most of his stuff on the way in, but after the show, he. He
0: would get in the car and bolt. Cool. Well, anyway, just curious about all that, but that's very cool. Alright, and so you mentioned that you have another day job as well. Oh yeah. Um I have another job as a licensed New York City tour guide. Oh, that's right. You mentioned that in your email as well. Now it's funny, all these coincidences. I knew a couple of people over the years who did that, and I I thought I would look into it. I thought I would try it. Um, People have no idea, and I will say this because I failed miserably, and I'm from <laughs> that test, and what you have to learn and study is insane. Oh, yeah. It's insane. Yeah. So tell us, tell us about how you got into that, because that I, I can tell you firsthand that that's that's impressive. <laughs> yeah. So that was. Um... I I'd always had
1: ushering as like my first job, but it's not quite enough to make ends meet in New York City. Um, so I've always had a second job, and I was floating around doing all sorts of different things. Like I've had the most random jobs, and I was looking for just something that would be more optimal, and this was posted on Playbill. They were looking for tour guides, and I'd never considered it before, but I was like, oh, that sounds pretty neat. And then they published the base pay and I was like, well, oh, that sounds really neat. Yeah. And so I had to send in a headshot and resume and I actually had to complete auditions for it, but it was a really informal audition. They just had you like cold read the tour guiding script. Yeah. And then I think it was like that afternoon or the next day they were like, Hey, like we love you. Do you want to move forward in the process? So I had to train on the tour. I had to memorize like a 12 page script and then, um, like train in the field a couple times. And then I was allowed to go out and do tours on my own. But wait, you didn't have to take that official test? Oh no. So not at first. Um, Mm -hmm. but then the the company was like, yeah, but eventually obviously we expect you to get licensed and they have a pretty extensive study guide that's been compiled by guides for years gone by yeah
0: okay see if I had known you could do it that way that might have been more manageable I just tried to learn and take the test before getting a job or anything
1: but anyway
0: it's still very impressive did did you so so you um did you find the test itself challenging because I thought it was a monster it's it's definitely a monster
1: test, that's for sure. Yeah. But um because the study guide was so comprehensive and it had it's pretty much a test bank with just all the questions and answers. It was just a lot of memorization.
0: Yeah. And it's a lot of like deep historic historical info and do do you use a lot of that historical info in <laughs> your tours or not really?
1: Yeah, like really random facts. Um <laughs> yeah. the tour that I do, it's it's a six hour walking tour of New York City and it covers ah, okay. pretty much everything. So six once we get hours. downtown, wow. Yeah, it's a it's a marathon tour. Um, but once we get downtown, because that's where all of the New York history is, yes. that's where those really deep random facts come into play.
0: I didn't know there was such a thing as a six hour walking tour of that. So Wow, and you and you have a whole group that just stays with you for the six hours. Yeah, um they cap it at
1: fifteen people, so I never have too many people to manage. Sure, but yeah, we start in Midtown, we do all of midtown, we go we take the train down to Wall Street, we do all of Lower Manhattan, we do the Staten Island ferry out and back so people can
0: see the Statue of Liberty. it's it's a pretty good tour that's killer man very okay i i don't, i was only thinking of like those the main you know those big bus tours but um very cool so that's great so good for you so yeah you have two of the i think pretty good uh pretty good day jobs for actors um yeah but it took i do want to say especially for anyone who's listening
1: it took me a while to get into that situation like my sure. first my first year or two after grad school mm-hmm. was a definite struggle where I was, I had like the worst jobs that you could imagine. Um, but that's what motivated me to just like keep looking for something better. Yep. And so now I, I really do feel like I've found
0: kind of the optimal survival job situation. It sounds like it. That's great, man. Good for you. Uh, okay. <laughs> very cool. So yeah, let's go back through your background, and then we'll come back around to what else you've done in New York and, and everything else. So um, where'd you grow up? I am from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And uh, what was it like there? Because I, I've, I'm i a New York guy. That's more or less all I know, New York, Connecticut area. So of I've course. always heard great things about North Carolina.
1: Yeah, North Carolina is awesome. It, it definitely has... Uh, like, it has darker aspects to its history, of course. Sure. But the community that I grew up in, Winston-Salem, was really great. It's a really progressive city with a huge focus on the arts. We're lucky, okay. I was so fortunate, I grew up down the street from the North Carolina School of the Arts. Oh. Perfect. Yeah, which has an amazing, it has an amazing drama school. And so, I grew up kinda just taking piano lessons at the School of the Arts and then, when I was in high school, I would do summer sessions for drama. And then I ended up going there for high school for classical guitar to study music. Really? Wow. Yeah. And it's it's really interesting because it has a high school and it's also a university conservatory that grants. Uh, I know they do master's degrees and I think you can get your doctorate there as well. Incredible.
0: Yeah, it's so, weird because you have eighth graders and PhD students on the same campus. So I'm sorry, maybe I maybe I didn't hear you clearly. I just want to understand. Y- you went there for classical guitar during high school. Yeah. Nice.
1: Yeah, so, I grew up always always <laughs> performing. I've always wanted to be an actor. Um, my motivation behind wanting to be an actor has changed and evolved since I was a kid, but. Yeah. I was always performing and, uh, I, I didn't know if I wanted to go there for drama or music. So I decided to do music because in high school you can only study drama there in 12th grade. Wow. And I wanted to go there as soon as I could. So I was like, well, if I go there for music, I can go in 11th grade. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. And then I just didn't, I didn't apply to transfer schools to the
0: drama school because I was having so much fun playing guitar. Yeah, and it's it's so funny because you're like the third or fourth person I've had on who was able to go to some kind of a performing arts high school. I really didn't know that so many of those are out there around the country. That's great. So um, so let's back up. So as a kid, you know, how did it start for you? Did you have, an, you know, uh, were you, you know, just adept at, you know, you wanted to act and stuff right away, even as a young kid? How did it start?
1: Yeah, I started doing school plays and musicals when I was in, I want to say elementary school. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> like third or fourth grade, and then my mom. I'm really lucky because my mom was super supportive of it. That's great. And so I I would go to theater camps during the summers, and then too. We, we have a lot in common. Yeah,
0: I did that too. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, yeah, and so then once I was old enough to start kind of taking it seriously. I would do like the summer session at the North Carolina School of the Arts, which they have a really prestigious drama school at the university level. It's their BFA is always ranked like top five in the country. Right. So that was pretty good training. But then I was just so interested in drama and music that I had a tough time deciding. But I ultimately went with the one that was more fun at the time.
0: Yeah. So and I want to get into that, but it's great that you're your parents or your mom was supportive. Uh, Was there any other background in the arts in your family at all? Not really. I mean, my mom played piano, so we had a piano in
1: our house. But Mm -hmm. really, no. Like, I don't have any other family members that have
0: done that or gone that route. Gotcha. And that was my next question, which is, you know, obviously you studied, but you were into it, you loved it, you know. Being musical is, is a big talent, and I'm sure you worked at it, but especially something like classical guitar, you know, how did you start to find your, your skill in that? How did you learn it? Well, I think it, it all started, I really wanted to
1: start playing guitar just because it it interested me. This was back in like, like 2002 or 2003. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Kind of embarrassing to admit,
0: but I was just like obsessed with Blink One Eighty Two. <laughs> I thought they were the coolest band. <laughs> I don't know, that's not that's not not embarrassing, that we all were in nice. high school. man. Absolutely,
1: yeah. So I was like, I think I want to start playing guitar. So I started with electric, and then uh, I got an acoustic guitar, and I was just learning all these different songs. This was back when like Dave Matthews was huge, and when I was fourteen and fifteen, I thought Dave Matthews was like the best musician in the world. Um, Again, kind of
0: embarrassing. (laughs) Well, it's funny you say that, because I was about to say, you know, in terms of guitar playing style, uh, Blink-182 is about as far as you can get from classical. Dave Matthews, you're getting a little closer.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and so what happens, I was taking lessons
0: with this guy
1: at a local music store. Yeah. And he had gone to college at the North Carolina School of the Arts for classical guitar. And he mm-hmm. said, you know, if you, if you want to take this seriously, you should look at the summer session where you can go and study classical music. And mm-hmm. I thought that sounded like a great idea. And then this is, uh, this is kind of a longer story, but okay. I went there. <laughs> yeah, I went there for the summer between my 10th and 11th grade years. And at that exact same time, um, my mom was working for Wachtulia which had just been taken over by First Union. And Wachovia was headquartered in Winston-Salem, but everyone was getting transferred down to Charlotte. Ah. And I didn't want to move. And so the teachers who were, like, heading the guitar program, they told us at the beginning, they were like, this is a great summer session, and if you work, like, really hard, we have a few open spots to come to school here. And I was like, oh, well, if I can go to school there and live in the dorms, I don't have to move to Charlotte and, like, leave my hometown and all my friends.
0: Of course, yeah.
1: Yeah, which was a great motivator. So that was, like, the most I ever practiced guitar in my entire life. And I ended up getting in. And uh, I got to go to school there for, like, two years.
0: That's killer. So, So your high school program, then, was the music program at the art school. And you were focused specifically on classical guitar. And... You know, and again, I've asked this before of people who went to performing arts high schools. I assume you had to do a regular academic high school curriculum as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, great. So, I mean, then what else did you do, you know, with that stuff during high school? Were you also, you said you were also doing plays as well during high school? Well, that was,
1: that was the thing about the school at the time. I don't know if it's changed in the last, like, 15 years since I was there. But there was no interaction between the different divisions at the school. So if you were in the school of music, you weren't allowed to take class in the drama department and vice versa. I see. Yeah, which is really weird because, like, the the students in the film school weren't allowed to work with the students in the drama school.
0: And I I think that's changed. But when I was there, there was, like, no crossover. So were you learning, like, all different aspects of music, theory, and technique, and just all different things with music. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so we had normal academic classes
1: to fulfill the North Carolina high school curriculum. Mm -hmm. And then we had arts classes that were like music theory, music history. I had to take lessons with my teacher once or twice a week. We had a master class every Monday.
0: It was really music intensive, and then there was a lot of time outside of that for individual practice. And did they did they give you opportunities to perform as well? Were there bands and groups and things that did performances? Yeah, well that was cool. I
1: started a band in high school that was like the most fun thing I had ever done and we actually um for a bunch of teenagers, we actually got pretty big. Nice. Yeah, we were I was in this band. We were like a funk rock fusion band and we were We were going around North Carolina and like South Carolina. We won a few battles with bands, like against adults. And then we headlined this huge club in Winston-Salem called Ziggy's, which is famous because like Ben Folds and Dave Matthews played there a lot when they were coming up. Nice.
0: Yeah, but then, you know, the band fell apart like (laughs) bands tend to do. As bands do, yeah. But, you know, I mean, that's how U2 started. They were young, and they were winning battles with bands in Ireland. Yeah. But, um, uh, what was I going to say? So, oh, yeah, the closest thing I have to that is, you know, I was in high school in the 90s, and Ska was having a really big resurgence at that time, and, um... And I had some good for cl- a bunch of my close friends actually because we were all doing the drama stuff together too. But they, a bunch of them, formed a band, a ska band. And because they had guys that could play the horns, you know, because they had done the horn stuff in music class, so they had the full ska band: the guitar, the drums, the and the horns, and everything. And I'm not gonna lie, they were good. They were tight, and they wrote some yeah. good songs and. There was this small, like local Long Island ska movement that they became part of for a bit, and and they did well. They really did well. I thought at the time, <laughs> um, very cool. So, and what what kind of music did you guys play, your band?
1: Yeah, it was mostly like funk rock. So we would open we would open for a lot of like fusion jam bands. Yeah, at the time that was like huge fifteen years ago. Sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very cool, man! Wow, excellent. So, all right. So you finish up high school, and then what's your next step? Well, yeah. So from there, um,
1: I, I was that was like a really weird transition period for me because I I had been so focused on music, and I was like all in on my band. And we, uh, when I say that we got big, I mean we weren't like big, big, but we we were talking to this guy who had a contact with a manager. Who was really interested in trying to get us on Warped Tour at the time. So we were like, oh yeah, we can be on Warped Tour. Like let's do this.
0: For so, real.
1: Wow. Yeah. So, um, obviously that ended up not happening, but I was, I was so focused on the band that I didn't really do acting at all in high school. And then, you know, the band kind of abruptly fell apart because our guitarist quit and our bass player, he like, he really wanted to focus on conservatory auditions. So he was like, I don't have time to train another guitarist, mm-hmm, etc. So it was at this point, like fall semester of my junior year where I was like, oh man, I, uh, I should probably take the SAT or something. If I'm not <laughs> going to be rocking in this band for the rest of my life. And so I had talked to my, my guitar teacher and we kind of agreed, like, okay, I'm not going to be a touring classical guitarist. And he said, you can come here for college if you want, but I I just don't think that's a great idea if you're not going to do this professionally. So I was like, well, what do I do? And this, this is like a really weird decision that I'm still trying to unwind in retrospect. But I ended up going to school at UNC Chapel Hill to study economics. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then I got into the business school there. And uh, I studied, I concentrated in finance, and I was like, well, I don't know, maybe I can, like, work on Wall Street, and if I can't be an actor or a musician, maybe I can make a lot of money and, like, donate to organizations sure. that that pursue the arts. And so I, I did that for, like, a couple years, and I graduated with a finance degree, but Luckily, I graduated in 2010, which was like right at the tail end of the recession. Yeah. <laughs> and there were, there were no finance jobs. Nope. So even though I, I interviewed for a couple, I didn't get them because they were only taking like five kids who had 4.0s and solid extracurricular resumes, which I did not have. Right. So I was kind of like floating around for the summer after I graduated. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what, like, maybe I'll take this as a sign. Like, I, I loved acting and music when I was a kid and in my teens. I'm just going to do it.
0: Good for you. Yeah. So is that when you went back to, oh, no. So, so Chapel Hill was where you graduated with the finance. You didn't study acting there at all. So what I did in
1: Chapel Hill, I had this internship for Wells Fargo while I was in school, and I would go there, like, twice a week, and I was so bored the entire time. Like, yeah. all I wanted to do was, like, be outside or be, like, anywhere other than that office. Sure. And so I would, I would like, goof around on the computer, and I was doing all this research about uh, 30 Rock, because that show was huge. Oh, yes. And this would have been, like, 2000. Nine. Yep. yep. And so I was doing all this research about Tina Fey, which led me to reading a lot about the second city in Chicago, which I'd always known about, but I'd never researched. And they have a college program where you can go up there for a semester and you can study improv, comedy writing, comedic acting, clowning. Um, it's a whole semester program that they call comedy studies. And they've now actually expanded it to like a full major. So you can go to Columbia College, Chicago, and major in comedy. Real? At the time, yeah. At the time, it was just a semester. And I was like, that sounds awesome. Yeah. I want to do that. Yeah. So I applied, and I got in. And so I left school for a semester to go to Chicago and do that. And I was like, yeah, this is – I have to just – I'm going to go back to school and, like, get my degree because I had one semester left. But I was like, then I've got to come back to Chicago and just keep doing this because, like, this is it.
0: That's great. So, so you ended up doing a, what'd you end up doing? Like a two year program at Second City? Yeah, so then after I graduated, I, Eventually got back to
1: Chicago. Um, uh, I got a job writing for the website Groupon. I don't know if anyone still uses Groupon anymore, <laughs> but like back in 2010, 2011, they were like the it company. They they were the fastest still, growing company in history. I think they're still doing pretty good, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always use it to buy like really cheap gifts for people. <laughs> right. Right. Um, But yeah, so I got a job writing for them. So if anyone got an email from Groupon between 2010 and 2013, there's a high probability I wrote it. There you go. Yeah, but that took me back to Chicago. And so as soon as I got there, I enrolled in the training program at I.O., which is where like Chris Farley and Amy Poehler and Tina Fey all studied. Oh, yeah. And then I was also I was auditioning for the conservatory at Second City, which is a year-long program but it's not open to the public. You have to audition to get in. Yeah. And so I, once I was accepted to that, which I did not get on my first time mm. or my second time, mm. um, I think I got it on my third audition. Wow. Which was a huge blow to my confidence if I'm being honest. Sure. Um, But I got in, I completed that. And then it was at the same time when I was in Chicago, I, I was going to see a ton of plays at the Goodman theater because I was like, you know, I haven't seen a play in years let me go see what's happening at the Goodman. And for a lot of like like personal reasons, I wasn't in a great place personally when I was in Chicago. I was mm-hmm. I was pretty depressed and yeah. I had just graduated and I didn't have a lot of friends in Chicago yet and it just put me in like a a bad mood. Yeah. But I went to go see the play Red at the Goodman yeah. and it just just struck a nerve. I right. I just saw the actors up there and thought like, oh wow, like I thought I moved here to do comedy, but whatever they're doing, yeah, I wanna do.
0: Yeah. yeah wow. Well, so yeah.
1: Oh yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, please. Go ahead. Oh well so that's what inspired me to enroll in actual acting classes. And at that point I hadn't had any real acting training Really ever, but um I kinda count the summer sessions I did in high school. But as far as like actual training, I had never taken Meisner, I didn't really know anything about the method. And so I was like, let me take some acting classes. And so I enrolled in this studio in Chicago and I realized like, okay, this is great. This is a great starting point. But for me, if I if I really want to be the kind of actor that I envision myself being, I need Intensive, structured training, like, in an institutional setting. Mm. Yeah, so that's when I started applying to MFA programs, and that's what brought me to New York.
0: Okay, so let's go back through this Chicago stuff first for a bit, because a lot of interesting things in there. First of all, you know, for people that don't know, Chicago has a very serious theater community and theater scene, and, of course, all the comedy stuff, like Second City. So let's talk first about Second City and that conservatory, because, you know, it is famous, especially for a lot of famous people for, for the last many decades that have come out of there. And, you know, improv these days is very ubiquitous, and people all over the place take it, take classes. So I think what, what some people don't realize is how serious the conservatory you know, how serious it is at the conservatory. And as you said, it took you three auditions to get in. Um, so tell me about what you think changed with your third audition, and then also tell me what the conservatory training there is really like. Yeah.
1: Um. So you're right. I don't think I even realized how serious the conservatory was when I went in, because mm-hmm. I went into it, if I'm being totally honest, I had this huge sense of entitlement when I was auditioning. I had already done that semester program. Right. So I, I knew all the teachers and I had been told that the audition was essentially a formality. Hmm. So I went into it with this expectation of like, yeah, like I'm going to get in. Right. And so, <laughs> um, and I didn't. And you know, because I had the relationship with the teacher already, he emailed me and he was like, Bobby, like, get out of your head. Like, make choices. Make strong choices. And I didn't know what that meant at the time. It was kind of, like, vague wording, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. Now, of course, in hindsight, I'm like, oh, yeah, I made zero choices. <laughs> I wasn't doing anything on stage. Yeah, yeah. But once I got in, it, it was this weird mix. I think it's like any program where you meet people who are, like, phenomenally talented and then you also there were a couple people i i don't want to say this but i was like how did you get in right um but it it was great training it was five different levels each one was like an eight-week program Mm -hmm. and we had class once a week for i think like three or six hours Mm -hmm. where we were working with um people who would essentially be like master teachers of improv like some of the best yes improvisers that we have in the u.s um and it was like really rigorous and they would really hold you accountable for like i said like making choices committing to things um
0: yeah i uh i don't really know how to describe it also it was a long time ago. no but that's exactly right i mean in the improv world like we said that's a very serious level and you know um yeah no i mean so and what, what i if i'm not mistaken the 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 goal with that is you guys were starting with improv but then the ultimate goal was to use the improv to develop scripts right oh yeah that's so that's a great that's
1: a great point um So that's where the differences exist in the two improv schools. I.O., which is short for Improv Olympics, but they can't use that name because they got sued by the actual Olympics. Did they Um, really? (laughs) Yeah, they did. That's so so ridiculous. I.O. is improv for improv's sake. Like, when you go there, you see stuff that is completely made up on the spot. Yeah. And some of the improv I saw at I.O., like if if anyone that ever sees TJ and Dave come to New York City, oh. if you ever see the improvised Shakespeare company come to New York City, mm-hmm. it's some of the best entertainment that you will ever see. Yes. And it's I, totally made up.
0: Yes. I, I actually know a little bit about this. I was sort of involved in improv in new york for a while and oh yeah. i've seen tj and dave at least twice i think live i've also seen their their documentary movie which is great yeah trust um, us this is all made up it's exactly great exactly um and they are it, it, it really is killer and and that they get to do that very unique type of performance and actually get paid for it the two of them is uh is incredible but um yeah, so exactly, so, yep, yeah, mm mm-hmm. um, Cool, so then you ended up, as you said, getting into the master's program in New York, and what school was that at?
1: Yeah, so then I, I went to the Actor's Studio Drama School like at the State University. University.
0: Right. Now, <laughs> that's famous to at least, you know, the majority of the public for being where they do that inside the Actor's Studio show. Um, Um, I don't even know if that show is still on. I have no idea what's going on with that. (laughs) Yeah, that show's still on. It's Uh actually, it's technically a master class. Right. It's part of the
1: the MFA program. Right. So as a student, you're allowed, uh, actually expected to attend. So I got to see some pretty cool conversations. That's great. Through that. But now it's, it's in kind of a transition period because James Lipton, he doesn't look it, but he's... I think he's, like, 90 years old. Yeah, yeah. And he still does an amazing job, but it's really taxing. So I think they're actually... I saw a press release the other day that said Alec Baldwin is going to take over, and he's going to... Really? Yeah, and he's going to switch off with Jane Lynch.
0: Alec Baldwin is, like, everywhere. This guy... I mean, he is one of the best actors, no question about it. Um, and I love a lot of his stuff, especially some of his lesser known movies and stuff. Um, but meanwhile, he's doing the game show. He does a great uh, interview show on NPR and a podcast. Um, and now you're saying he's going to do this thing. He's on SNL doing Trump. I mean, this guy is everywhere.
1: Yeah, I never thought about that, but you're totally right. He <laughs> He's got a lot of you know, irons in the fire right now. <laughs>
0: he does. But anyway, okay, so so anyway, though, tell us about the MFA program there at Pace. Oh, yeah, so that was, um, I mean, it's a three-year master's degree where
1: it's attached to the actor's studio, and I will say those organizations are very loosely affiliated, right. but the school is still technically... Under the Umbrella and the Jurisdiction of the Actors Studio, which is famous for being, like, Lee Strasberg's home for method acting.
0: Yeah, and 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 I'm sorry, we will get back. I don't want to, you know, I mean, we'll get back to this, but I have to ask another tangent, which is... Of course. I think there's a lot of confusion and or mystery about the Actors Studio itself. All I know about it, all I think I know about it is... It's a very kind of closed group of actors that if you get in, you can, like, go there to work and train and work on material. Is that is that what the actor's studio is?
1: Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Okay. You have to audition, and the auditions are open to the public. Anyone can audition, but right. the acceptance criteria are like really really competitive and arbitrary yeah. and subjective and i i don't agree with all of it and it's it's a very old school organization yeah and when i was when i was in school and even now like i am still pretty critical of it mm-hmm. but also if you watch any movie with marlon brando in it it's tough to deny like it's <laughs>
0: Yeah. Um, it it definitely earned all of the prestige that it's associated with. Well, when you say you're critical of it, what do you mean by that? Well, so I guess you know the name of this
1: podcast is Craft Business Life. We, yes, indeed. If we can get into the the craft of acting
0: for a little bit. Yes, in fact, I was um, going to anyway with your training. So perfect timing. Yep.
1: Yeah, totally. So not not that I'm an expert by any means, but I, I was exposed to a ton of method acting in grad school. And this is method acting in the traditional sense where my my teachers all trained with Lee Strasberg. Um, it was on like, in my opinion, method acting was on the cutting edge. Of acting schools mm-hmm. in the 1950s and 60s mm-hmm. and the 70s. I mean, any, any movie with like De Niro and Pacino, mm-hmm. they're great. They're some of the best films that we have. Mm-hmm. But I think there's been this tremendous evolution in acting styles and performing styles. Mm-hmm. And I, I just don't know if the method has really caught up to it. Uh huh. And, the school still teaches it as if we were in the
0: 1970s. Interesting.
1: Yeah. Which I think is a great place to start, but I guess for anyone who's thinking about pursuing acting, if they're looking for styles to study, the best advice I could give is don't pick just one. Like method acting is, it's awesome when it works, but it can't, it's just
0: a tool and you can't have
1: just one tool.
0: Okay. So yeah, this is exactly where I wanted to go anyway. So this is perfect. So let's break this stuff down because I think there's a lot of confusion out there. So, so first of all, I happen to agree with you, uh, in my humble opinion, this has come up a lot and I've talked about Meisner with a lot of people, but also again, ultimately most people and most good conservatories basically say, try a bunch of things and, and have a bunch of different techniques in your toolbox and so forth but let's clarify because you were just explaining something very important i think a lot of people myself included are a little confused about the method because i think people think the method which came out of stanislavski and then there's different you know um there were different sort of divisions of it so to speak with lee strasberg stella adler sanford meisner etc and Meisner developed his own very specific technique but when you talk about the traditional method acting as you were just explaining what exactly does that refer to
1: yeah that's a great question hopefully i can uh lay it to rest on your podcast. Right, Um, let's do it. (laughs) You heard it here first. (laughs) Yeah, I asked my teacher this question just boldly, straight up, because I wanted a definitive answer. Because when everyone hears of method acting, they think of, like, Jared Leto becoming the Joker, or, like, you know, Heath Ledger becoming the Joker. Right. Or anything that Daniel Day-Lewis is doing. Like, that is what we and now commonly perceive as method acting Absolutely. but the way the way it was founded and taught by Lee Strasberg according to my teacher Jacqueline Knapp, who studied with him um it's it's extremely simple it's literally just using your personal experiences in that of the character so when people see someone like Jared Leto acting like if he's using his personal experiences when he's creating his character, then like, yeah, he's method acting. But all the extremes that you hear about people doing these like weird things that kind of look like publicity stunts right. right? to act or like staying in character the whole time you're on set or whatever mm-hmm. that could be method acting if they're using their own experiences to craft the character.
0: But that's what I refer to as just having a strong process. Absolutely. So using your own experiences in the character, that to me seems like a very good, straightforward, general concept for acting. That's sort of what I... I didn't have much formal training myself either, but that's kind of what I learned. Uh, So that makes sense. And of course, if we want to go deeper with it, it came out of Stanislavski, and he was reacting to sort of the much older very superficial, very sort of over-the-top kind of superficial, melodramatic type of acting that used to go on,
1: right? Yeah, exactly. Right. And um, I think it, it is such a simple definition that some people, they could be acting by the method without even knowing it. Of course. Um, but I think where we could get a little deeper is probably where Lee Strofford took it out of Stanislavski was... Uh, he was like famous for emotional recall, which is, you know, really diving deep into your own past, your own emotions, your own psyche, mm-hmm. and really rooting out at your core what ignites your inner fire um, mm-hmm. with regards to the circumstances of whatever piece you're working on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes that can be, like, a devastating memory. I think that's also what the what the method is famous for, is um, giving people, like, psychological problems.
0: Right, which, of course, nobody, you know, n- no legitimate teacher or director or anything would ever want that, and that's certainly not healthy for an actor or anything. But Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah, but, okay, so, exactly. So, well, first of all, in terms of, like, that whole method thing and emotional recall. Can you give an example or tell me if I'm sort of right about this generally? So it's like you're looking at, you're analyzing a script and then let's say you're taking one scene, for example, and this character in this scene is going through this particular set of circumstances and he's got this relationship with this other character and so forth, and you're trying to find things in your own personal life, your own real experience, that are either similar or analogous, so you can use your own memory of your emotions to bring out these feelings in the character. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, so so what... So what then so you talked about Strasbourg. What then made it with these different factions? Like what was different then about Stella Adler? What was different about Bobby? I forget his name. There's somebody named Bobby. There's like these different factions. What what makes the different factions off of this method thing different?
1: Yeah, so I I might not be the best person to answer this because I didn't I didn't necessarily study Stella Adler's technique, so this mm-hmm. is kind of just based on what I've read and what I've heard, but sure. uh, from what I know, Stella Adler was really based in the imagination, and mm-hmm. so if you're reading a text, and you're doing your text work, and you're trying to figure out like what's going on in the scene, mm-hmm. and then relate it to your life, you can think okay, well, what's an experience in my life that is similar? And that might be Lee Strasberg. Or you could just you know, with Stanislavski's magic, if, right. What, what if I were in that situation, how would I respond? How would I react? Stella Adler takes that to a place of, well, let me just imagine everything. Right. And I, I want to point out that I think that's extremely valuable. And even though the actor studio is a strictly method organization, when we were in the school, we had a teacher who taught us Meisner and we had a teacher who would use Adler exercises. Um, so even though it was primarily Lee Strasberg's method, probably like 80%, it was also 20% other tools, like whatever you need to get to the place you want to get.
0: Yeah. And that's also very interesting. I see. I did not know that. That's very interesting that it's, it's kind of the opposite. It's, you can either go with using your own memory. Or you can go with just imagining what it would be like. That's very interesting. Um, so what you're, what you were saying before then, basically, if, if I'm not mistaken, is that the actor's studio is still very strictly the traditional Strasbourg style.
1: Yeah, definitely. And when I say that they're traditional and maybe like a little stuck in the past, what I mean by that is I think the organization, likes to deny that other styles of acting exist. They think the method is
0: like, right. like the one the one true doctrine. Oh boy. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Very interesting. So let's talk more about the training because again, it's a big subtopic of this podcast. In fact at some point I'm gonna do a podcast series with groups of actors all focused just on training. So if oh, yeah want, if you want to come on that as well, I'd love to have you. But anyway, um, so, you know, and this, I think, was one of my problems growing up. You know, it's easy to understand these things intellectually. It's easy to go, oh, sure, you, you use a memory from your life that's similar. Or, oh, sure, I can imagine what it would be like to be in this situation. But, you know, having that thought in your head doesn't necessarily accomplish anything as far as getting it out in a way that an audience can see. So mm-hmm. tell us about the actual work. And what you're trained to do and how you get this, these meth, this method, so to speak, no pun intended, out <laughs> of just the realm of intellect in your head and like, you know, how you actually can use it tangibly to get a performance out.
1: Yeah, that is, that is a really, really great subject that I think is open to a lot of debate and discussion because I think that. Ultimately, that's like the supreme challenge yeah. because you can read a play and say, like, I understand this perfectly. Like, I know exactly what's going on, but it's, it's entirely possible that you just don't connect to it. Um, yeah. And so then the technique becomes like, okay, maybe I don't connect to this. How can I form that connection? And I think that's really the work. It comes in and a lot of it is subjective. A lot of it from what I, from what I've heard from other actors I've spoken with, a lot of it is just do whatever you think you need to do to create that connection. I think a lot of it can be developed through physical technique and vocal technique. I think having good movement training is really, really important to be able to
0: physically express what's going on internally. Okay, so that's, again, you keep giving me these perfect segues of places I was going to go anyway, so thank you. (laughs) Oh, nice. And we didn't plan this or anything. So that's exactly right. So another aspect of all this is this question of inside versus outside. You know, the whole thing is like, again, back in the day, it was superficial, it was melodramatic, and we don't want that anymore. But the other extreme is... You may be thinking and feeling, you know, a ton inside yourself, but if it's not coming out, if it's not playing, if the audience can't see it, then it doesn't matter. And, yeah. and this is a big thing, and this is a big reason that they say the whole British invasion of actors is a thing, because they have, as you said, movement and voice and They, you know, some people say they take it sort of more seriously technically than Americans do, but all that is to say that you need both, right? You need the internal work and the external work.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, I was really fortunate. I had really fantastic movement training in school, and I think that's really important to physically expressing what you're feeling internally yeah and also vocal training i you know one of the main ways that we communicate on stage is with our voice yeah. and studying a vocal technique that helps form the connection between your voice and your body is also really valuable and then it's i think it's also really valuable to find a teacher that you really trust to be your critical eye or if you're in a project really trusting your director um yes. because sometimes you can feel it and you can express it but it might not be coming out the way you think it is and that's where having a director or a teacher with a really like
0: expert critical eye dude can me get yeah let me tell you you are speaking my language because when i was acting and this is one of the reasons i eventually realized i didn't really know what i was doing you know, a lot of times I would get that note where they would say, and I would say, oh, yeah, that is what I'm going with. They would say, it is not coming out. It does not read that way. (laughs) And I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, that's, like, the worst feeling in the world, and it can be really embarrassing. I think if you're in class, like, one of the most important things to do is just open yourself up to that, be vulnerable, and don't be afraid of criticism because ultimately criticism is going to be your best friend if yeah. it's from someone that you trust. It's also entirely possible to be in the room with a teacher or a director who's like completely full of shit. Pardon my expression. Yeah. Um, you know, they might not know what they're talking about. Not everyone is an expert. And so much of what we do is subjective that it it really comes down to like taking time to find the people that you
0: trust and like gel with. And did you find that at your MFA program that you, you had good teachers in that sense? And you, you know, were, were you, you know, did, did you find the training there to be fulfilling? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm just now
1: realizing that in retrospect because when I got into school, um, I applied to like 10 different drama schools. And the Actors Studio was the only one that I got into. And I had to deal with a ton of rejection. And then also I had a huge chip on my shoulder that I wasn't accepted to like Juilliard or Yale uh, where I really, really wanted to go. So when I showed up Mm at the Actors Studio, I I was really self-conscious. And... I think it was like Groucho Marx who said, I don't want to be a member of any club that would accept me as a member. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I, I was going through a lot of self doubt and I was thinking like, oh, well, if this is the only school I got into, maybe it's not that good. Uh-huh. But in hindsight, oh no, I know. Uh, but in hindsight, I'm realizing, uh, that's absolutely not true. Like I'm so fortunate to have studied with the teachers that I studied with and to be in the room with uh these people who were like kinda legendary. Um, I I did get in a lot of fights with the administration. The administration is a different a different story. I'm very critical of the administration, but mm-hmm. the teachers were phenomenal
0: and the training was really great. I use it pretty much every day. So that and that was going to be my next question. So you already alluded to some of it, but if if you have any more specific you know, advice or just you know, what are some of the specific tools and techniques you now apply, whether it be for an audition or when you break down a script that you're preparing to work on? What what are some of the actual tools and techniques that you use? Um. Well, script analysis. I mean, that's that's a really really
1: long topic that I probably don't have time Fair to enough. get into. Yeah, I mean that's yeah that takes weeks and months and years to really like sure. fine tune that skill and i'm i'm still developing it you know to be honest sure but there are some there are some great books that people can read i would definitely recommend reading forwards and backwards um that's probably the best book out there on script analysis nice but then in terms of like practical application do you, of the techniques do you, happen to learn, to know, do you happen to know the author of that book um i don't know off the top of my head okay. i actually look it up yeah, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now to try to find it. No, but it. <laughs> I'll find it by the end of the conversation. No, don't worry, people and, uh, can easily can easily Google it. I was just curious. <laughs> yeah. It's all right. Um, but yeah, then there are also not necessarily specific techniques that I learned, but more just transformations that I underwent during school. What I mean by that is um uh, I went into school in an extremely guarded place emotionally. Mm -hmm. And we had so many conversations about how as humans, you know, when we're kids, we are emotionally open to everything. Like if you've ever like watched kids play or if you have younger siblings or younger nephews or anything, and you've seen the way kids experience the world, they're open to everything. And like they fall down and they start crying and then you show them a stuffed animal, and they're just laughing hysterically. Like, we, as humans, we are the most emotionally versatile beings. Right. But as you get older, society kind
0: of beats that out of you. Yeah, and of course, Uh, famously, supposedly, Stanislavski was inspired originally by watching kids play. Yeah. Right, exactly. I forgot that. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and
1: I... I can't speak for everybody but for me that was certainly true. I I had all this emotional armor that was holding me back in my personal life and also in my artistic life and I had one teacher Elizabeth Kemp who um she she recently passed away a year ago but she mm-hmm. she was Bradley Cooper's teacher famously. Mm-hmm. She coached
0: she coached Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga on oh, wow. A
1: Star Is Born.
0: Really wow so so, like, right before she passed away, kind of. Exactly. Oh, that's true. Um, wow, she,
1: she was my first-year teacher who taught me acting technique according to the method, and she is solely responsible for just completely stripping me of all the emotional armor I was holding on to so that I, I feel like I'm, you know, open to the world again, and I, I can actually experience emotions.
0: So, you know, I don't know if you want to, if you're willing to elaborate on that at all, it's up to you, but that's one of those things that, you know, you hear about this sort of thing in acting training, oh, they're going to break you down and strip you of that, as you said, and blah, 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 and build you back up, and I think for non-actors and even for actors, that's a very strange and maybe scary idea, and then it's this question of, oh, acting's not supposed to be therapy, blah, blah, blah. So can you talk any more about that as a, as a personal process? Because it's, it's intense, right?
1: Yeah, I I think people who say that are entitled to their own opinions. But ultimately, if you study acting and decide to pursue it, your life is your own experience. Right. And for, for me, grad school was extremely therapeutic. I wasn't looking at it to be my sole form of therapy. Right. And when I was in school, I was also seeing a therapist. I think that's... Extremely important as well. Absolutely, there, for
0: anybody. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, there there are certain things that acting teachers will ask you to do that require you to examine yourself. They require you to face certain things that you might be denying. And for me, like my own personal experience through, through these acting exercises, I was kind of forced to confront myself face to face and really examine, like, okay, who are you? Yep. And why are you holding on to all of these things? And I I wish I could go into better detail about it, but it's really this thing that I, I can't describe. And I know that sounds kind of vague. It no, it is. It is no vague. it's very personal. No, not at all. Yeah, yeah.
0: absolutely. But that's great. So um, that's all excellent, man. That really is. So... Um, I don't even know where to where to go from here. That's, oh yeah. That's well, no. So then that
1: was that was one of the transformations. But then also, you know, besides being reopened to life, that sounds that sounds really dramatic. No, um, That's a huge claim. Yeah. But also like the development of my imagination. So that for me personally, the biggest thing that helps me when I'm on stage is creating a fourth wall and really in my imagination creating the world that i'm going to be playing around in mm-hmm. and uh grad school has it really helped me to flex my imaginative muscles so that i can kind of like this might sound weird but i can kind of just like snap my fingers and like oh i'm in a different space and i see this and this and this right. and, like, yeah that's that's just one of the things that i was able to develop during school and also i want to point out that like as much as i wish this was a unique experience, and I was, and that I'm the only person that this happened to. I hear this from almost everyone I know that went to conservatory. Yeah. Well, again, so it, yeah. Well, so it's just a huge testament to the
0: work and like what it can actually do. No, that's exactly right. You know, this is, again, why I'm so fascinated by acting training. One, because I didn't have much of it myself. And two, because I want people out there to know, both actors and non-actors, you know, that it, that it takes serious, serious work. It's no different from any other real craft or any other real thing you're trying to learn to do. It, you know, it's, it's not some easy nothing thing that anybody can do. It's not. So, yeah, yeah, you know, people, I want people to elevate. It's like Uda Hagen, you know, respect for acting, like really elevate the perception of what actors have to do. Um, Of course. Yeah, that's great, man. So. So let's see. So you finish up at school, the MFA. um, And uh, and so besides the Met, of course, what else have you gotten to do? You know, that you've enjoyed working on since then. Um, lots, lots of really random small projects.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I did, right out of grad school, I, I did a summer up in New Hampshire, at the Peterborough Players doing summer stock theater, mm-hmm. where I was in Vanya and Sonia and Masha and Spike. Oh, yeah. Christopher Durang play. Yep. And that was actually really cool. That was a really special experience for me because I had come to New York, when I was living in Chicago, I came to New York to see that play because I knew the actor playing Spike, Ooh. Billy Magnuson who originated the role. He went to the North
0: Carolina School of the Arts and I he may was in college, crazy, but that I may be totally crazy in making this up, but I feel like that name sounds familiar to me for some reason. But anyway, oh yeah, he's, no.
1: he's had a great career. Okay. Um anyone can google him. I'm not going to like list off his resume here. Okay. He's <laughs> He's doing really well. Great. But he was in the college when I was in the high school, so I always like saw him around campus and we would you know i would like play basketball with him in the gym so when he was making his debut at lincoln center i was like oh i've got to go see billy in this show Mm -hmm. and um i saw it and it did two things for me like one i realized like oh like that's exactly my type like i could do that and two because i knew billy it it made acting more accessible to me. This was in, I think, 2011 mm-hmm. or 2012, which is right when I was about to embark on my conservatory application experience. Right. And so when I saw Billy doing this, I was like, "Oh man! Like, if Billy's up there, like, I know him. Like, if Billy can do it, I can do it." Mm-hmm. Um. It, it became like a little more attainable to me. Mm -hmm. And so then when I was in grad school, we got to work on a thesis, or we got to work on a play as our thesis, and I assembled a team who was really interested in doing Vanya and Sonia and Masha and Spike Mm -hmm. as our thesis. So I got to work on the role in grad school, and then when I was leaving, I saw that the Peterborough players were going to do it in their summer season, and so I auditioned for it, and I got to do it as my first like professional job. That's great. Yeah, but actually, this is worth talking about. I kind of got. Please. I kind of got burned in that experience a little bit. Really? How so? Yeah, well, I'm only mentioning this just in case younger actors ever listen to this podcast.
0: I, I hope. I want them you to be aware. That's one of the purposes of it, yes, so please, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: so, um, any, anyone who has ever had to wake up at like six or five AM to go to an EPA audition down at the equity building or like Pearl Studios build mm-hmm. this might resonate with them. Um I was doing that I did that a few times before I realized that for me personally that was not a sustainable way of auditioning for things. And so to get that role, I couldn't go to their auditions in New York City because I wasn't equity. So I, I I wasn't seen at the audition. So I rented a car and I drove to New Hampshire for their local auditions. And that's how I, that's how I, yeah, that's how I booked it. Mm
0: -hmm. But
1: the thing is when they called me and offered me the role, they offered me an internship. So they said, we'd love for you to be an intern for the summer season Mm -hmm. and do Spike and Vanya Sonia Masha and Spike. And at the time, I was just so excited that I had been offered a job that it didn't even occur to me to try to ask for an equity contract because I was afraid they would say no and then cast someone who wasn't going to give them any problems. Yeah. But in hindsight, this is like one of my biggest regrets. I, I just had like no guidance in this process and no one told me that like, it's okay to ask for an equity contract. If you're cast in a principal role on an equity stage, that's fine to do, and here's how you do it. Ask them, or first say, thank you so much, I'm very excited. Then ask, do you have any equity contracts available? I'm very interested in joining the union, do you think that would be possible? And if they say yes, then congratulations, you're an equity actor. And if they say no, then you can say, oh, well, I'm not interested, or you can say, oh, well, that's great. I still can't wait to come up there and be an intern or an apprentice for the summer because that was a really valuable experience. And I learned a ton. But then I came back to New York and I had an EMC card, which is kind of like the Equity Junior program. And I thought that would really help me out. I thought I'd be able to skip the line at auditions. So I was fine taking my EMC card and working for a 100 bucks a week during the summer. But then as soon as I got back equity changed the rules. So now you can register for auditions online, which means people from like the outer counties, Long Island, Connecticut. I've even met people from Pennsylvania who make an appointment online and then drive in for the audition. So now my EMC card is this, I don't want to say it's worthless, but it's like being non-equity all over again. So if you're a non-equity actor and you're behind the EMCs in line, I, I don't even know what they do at this point if you're going to epa's so i guess what i'm trying to reinforce here is the value of being in a union and if you're presented with that opportunity early on don't be afraid to ask for it because that's like a huge regret of
0: mine no i'm sorry to hear it, and it is there's a lot of very important points in that story and some of this has come up with other guests so yeah you got to be careful you know, not to be naive and not to get taken advantage of and really understand what your options are. And yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. That's I get Yeah. It but I also, I don't want that to come off as a reflection on the theater because
1: they, that was a fantastic experience. Sure. They treated me extremely well. Yeah. But at that time in my career, in my life, I just didn't have like any guidance professionally. So I didn't know how to handle that situation.
0: Yeah, and another side to that coin, too, and again, this has come up before, is, you know, some actors feel that even if you get the chance, if you don't have enough on your resume, if you don't have enough experience, if you're not ready to compete on the equity level for work, it might be better to hold off on taking the equity card, because once you have it, you can't take non-equity work anymore and so forth.
1: Yeah, and that's a really valid point. So I think the
0: the choice to join the
1: union is an individual choice exactly. that people need to evaluate on their own. Right. So I'm only telling this story in case people are interested in joining the union
0: and the opportunity is presented to them. Absolutely. Yeah, and of course the whole thing with getting up early and waiting on those lines, that has come up all the time on the podcast as well. It's not easy. <laughs> oh, man, it was brutal. Z. And that that's also another good segue to something else, which is, so, you know, we talked a little bit about all the real work involved in being an actor, and you talked about the physical and vocal aspect. And then, of course, you know, some of the work you've done, for example, you know, being on stage in a run at the Met every night doing, you know, possibly fight scenes and whatever else. But anybody who's in a a theater show, um, especially, you know, the the need to keep yourself in shape, like literally physical shape and just shape with all your tools as an actor, your body, your voice, your mind, everything, as well as keeping up with the pace of life of an actor, again, as we've been talking about. So I've asked this to a lot of guests, you know, What are some of your routines or if you have any or advice for actors about, you know, just staying healthy and staying in shape both, you know, in a normal way and specifically for what you need as an actor? Yeah, that, I think that's up to the
1: individual. Like personally for me, I, I try to work out a couple times a week. I don't Mm -hmm. always, I, I don't always make it to the gym. But I try. Physical fitness is definitely important to me. But I'm sure, as people listening probably know, like sometimes your schedule just just doesn't allow you to make it a priority. Yeah. Um. But that being said, it's still an important part of my routine. And with the vocal stuff, I got a lot of like really great vocal training in school. So I don't warm up every day, but I do singing warm-ups probably a couple times a week just so like, vocal cords to, like, atrophy. Yeah. And any time I have a, a big audition, I rent a studio somewhere in, like, Midtown, and I do, like, an hour link later warm-up.
0: That's great. And, again, this kind of thing has come up before, too, the real self-discipline of, of actors doing these things on their own. It's really fantastic. And for those that yeah. don't know, explain what Linklater is. Oh, yeah. So um, Linklater is, is just a vocal
1: pedagogy. It's named after Kristen Linklater, who I think is Scottish. And she developed this whole system of vocal technique that's all based in relaxing your body, freeing up all of your breathing musculature, and opening up your resonators and the places in your body where your vibration can resonate. So that your voice can just flow freely, um, stemming from an impulse, just kind of flow freely into the world.
0: Yeah. So again, I never had any of this kind of training myself. I heard about this much more recently, and uh, it sounds great. You know, between that and Alexander, there's so many great techniques out there. Um, yeah. So that's killer. Good for you. Um. Very cool. So, you know, besides the man and everything, you know, what, what what other kinds of things do you generally audition for nowadays? Is it mostly for, for plays or? Oh, yeah. Um,
1: I, I definitely prefer theater. Uh, that's my passion. It's what I was trained in. It's what I've always wanted to do. Yeah, I have a manager right now who sends me out for TV and film auditions. Mm-hmm. And i probably get, like, one a month. And I've only been working with him since August, and I haven't booked anything that he's sent out on yet. Yeah. And I, I kind of carry a little bit of guilt about that. It's, <laughs> um,
0: it's incredibly hard.
1: It's incredibly hard. Oh, yeah. Uh, but TV and film, that industry is just something that I, I don't know a lot about. I don't have a lot of experience or exposure to it. Even though I am SAG, um, yeah. I got my SAG card doing background work on the deuce, and the only reason I bought into SAG is so that after a year, I could buy into equity so I could get my card and start signing
0: up for EPAs. And by the way, it's funny, I was going to ask you how you got your SAG card, so you reminded me, and this topic of background work has come up a lot too. A lot of people do background work you know, as a way to make some money, as a way to be on set and possibly to get your SAG card, like you said, and so forth. So there's a lot of value in background work. And again, for those that don't know, there are a lot of film and TV productions in New York, a lot of TV shows you don't even realize are filmed here, are filmed here. So um, if you look into it, you can find out how to potentially get, you know, background work on these things. So, um, yeah, very cool. So, if you could, you know, make it happen, what, what would your ideal, you know, long term future look like? What, what would your career look like, say, for the next, you know, five or ten years? What, what are your goals?
1: I think about that all the time. Yeah. I still, I still don't really have an answer. When I was in school, I thought it was Broadway. Mm hmm. Because that's a really, that's like a real, a really specific standard. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, oh, if I can make it on Broadway, that will somehow like legitimize me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, I, I have like very specific thoughts and opinions about Broadway and sometimes really amazing work makes it to the Broadway level, but most of the time it's all commercial theater. That I don't think I would find like personally fulfilling, even though I would love the Broadway paycheck. Right. I don't. I don't know if I would love doing the work that's on Broadway right now. Right. And so I do see a lot of work at other theaters, specifically BAM and St. Ann's Warehouse, uh, that is really interesting to me. And anything at the Park Avenue Armory, I tend to love. So I really love more experimental avant-garde art. Sure. The thing is, that kind of stuff doesn't come up very often, and when it does, it's it's not long-term. Right. Because, you know, p- plays tend to run for 14 weeks, limited engagement, if that. Yeah. Like, um, so, I don't know. I mean, t- to be honest, like, right now, I'm extremely happy, and I'm finding a lot of fulfillment at the Met. It's an organization that I really proud to be involved in, and I think the quality of work that they're doing at the Metropolitan Opera is some of the best in the world. I've seen some of the most amazing shows ever at the Metropolitan Opera, so even though I'm only contributing in a small way, I'm still really proud and really excited to walk in the building
0: every day. Oh, absolutely, as you should Um, be. The history and tradition alone.
1: uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I... As far as 10 years in the future, I know at some point I want to either teach or work in administration just because I have this, I have this instinct where I want to guide younger actors Mm -hmm. and artists and just let them know like what the industry is like and what is possible. Because I I remember growing up, like I, I had a lot of people telling me that the arts weren't a possibility. E- even though my mom was really supportive and I went to a conservatory, I had other people that were a little more discouraging, which is part of the reason I ended up studying finance. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I I really want people to know, like for people who are interested in pursuing this, is that it it is possible. And I, I think a lot of people also, when they're doing their high school play, They think that acting is the only possibility in the theater because you're not exposed to positions like stage managers, professional directors, crews, producers, company managers, like all these people who have an invaluable contribution to putting a show up. So anyway, I have this instinct to let people know that a life in the arts is completely possible. Like, no, it's not easy, but it's possible. And I don't know how that's going to manifest later. I don't know if I want to teach or work at an organization to kind of spread the arts to more communities. But I don't know, something along
0: those lines. But right now it's performing. Well, those are all really good points. And again, it's another one of the purposes of the podcast. It's very possible. There are lots of jobs and careers, as you said. Um, and a lot of actors end up doing other things in, in the field. Um, but yes, 100 percent. Yes, it's a real industry. You know, you got to treat it like a real job. But if you do, then yes, you can absolutely have a career in it. Um, very cool, man. Good for you. Um, so that's a great note to kind of start to wrap up on. Uh, is there anything else specific you want to mention or discuss before we uh before we start to wrap this up? Um, not really. I mean, we've, we went deep for a while. We've covered a lot of stuff. So I, uh, it was great and I'm happy to have you back anytime. And like I said, there are going to be some group uh, episodes as well, which you're certainly of course, uh, welcome to come on. Um, yeah, love, awesome. love to have you. Um, and so, okay. So one last big question then for you, <laughs> um, you know, you already talked about the the, the Durang play incident, um, which is a which is a bummer. But oh, other yeah. than that, you know, if you looking back on your journey so far, if there's one thing you could go back and change or tell your younger self that you know now that you didn't know then, what would it be?
1: Mm. Um that's tough. A while ago I would have said that I, I wish I had gone to conservatory undergrad. But, you know, then it, that's a different path, and who knows how my life would have turned out. You know, maybe I would have burned out at 23 right. and decided the arts weren't for me. So I guess if, if there was one thing that I would change, it would be, I guess, kind of the point that I was just making about how I didn't always think it was possible. Right. But it completely is. I, I don't know if that sounds cliche, like, follow your oh, dreams. No. But like, seriously, like, yeah. follow your dreams. Like, if, if you really are passionate about it and interested in it, believe me, you'll find a way to make it work, even if you have to work as an usher and a tour guide to support it. Um, like, don't, just don't be,
0: Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, don't be turned off by the idea of failure. Absolutely. And again, not to repeat myself, but this is part of why I'm doing this podcast. It's been very inspiring because I'm talking to people, you know, at different stages of their journeys, but a lot of them are are young. They're like right out of school and they're so smart and they're so motivated and they're really taking it seriously. And it's, you know, it's, it's really inspiring. It's, it's great to see people who are really determined to to work in the arts and be actors and be everything. So that's, that's awesome, man. So yeah. do you want to share any personal social media, like a website or anything? Yeah. I mean, I, uh,
1: I have an Instagram. If anyone wants to follow me, my handle is, uh, at Bobby with a underscore B. So that whole phrase, Bobby with a B with a little underscore in it. um, and also if anyone is listening to this and they want to reach out, if they have any questions about acting or if they want advice or any kind of guidance, uh, please reach out. I'm
0: more than happy to like share more of my story and experiences. If anyone has questions. Perfect. And we'll post the links to that and anything else you want to link to, uh, on the, uh, episode notes. So people can easily, uh, see and, and click on those. And uh, same with me. If anybody wants to reach me about the podcast for any reason, it's just Craft Business Life Podcast. That's all one word, Podcast at gmail.com. So, Bobby, this has been really fantastic. Thank you again so much.
1: Lee, thank you. This was great. I really appreciate it.
0: All right. Thanks, everybody. Till
1: next time. Bye-bye.